What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we continue our series on fraud. I had someone come up to me last week and say, when you started talking about fraud, I thought I was back at work dealing with my customers. Well, it's not that kind of fraud that we're dealing with here, although sometimes that fraud can be a good analogy for what happens to us in spiritual terms. Uh, When I was at a, a Starbucks writing my sermon, a man at the table behind me got a phone call, and he put it on speakerphone for some reason. As he answers, everyone in the store hears, you have just won a grand prize through Publishers Clearinghouse. It's not even Vince McMahon, it's just a robotic woman's voice, and he keeps listening to learn how to claim his prize. The woman with him, who I assumed was his daughter, keeps telling him, it's just a scam, hang up the phone, but he won't do it. He keeps listening because he wants to get his free reward. The temptation of that grand prize is too strong. Ridiculous, right? But that can be how it is with our faith, too. And I'll make a case for it in a moment. Uh, Let's hear now our scripture for today. Carol is going to read for us. We are going to hear from the Apostle Paul in one of his most compelling writings on the meaning of faith in Jesus Christ. He's trying to explain how it is that we can be made right with God when we all fail. We all sin against God and others. What is it then that makes us any good in God's eyes? And Paul points back to the example of Abraham, the father of the Jewish religion. What was it that made him a man of faith? What of him can we emulate today? People had it confused as to what was most important, so Paul sets the record straight. Let's hear what the apostle has to say from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 and 13 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who works without trust in him who justified ungodly, unjustifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So as David speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God reckons righteousness apart from his works. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or his descendants through the law but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but wherever there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants not only to the adherents of the law, but also those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of all of us. Second Chronicles 2020, Joseph had stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe 
his prophets. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's join together in prayer as we begin. Lord, make us an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Give us faith that isn't fraudulent or embarrassed of the life you call us to, but embraces all you have for us. Work in our hearts and minds today as we listen for your voice. In Christ we pray. Amen. So imagine you got the call from a robot claiming to have a million-dollar prize from the publisher's clearinghouse. Do you hang up or do you hold out hope that maybe, just maybe, it might be the real thing and a cool million dollars is around the corner for you? Uh, For me, I'm not really one for any forms of gambling like casinos or the lottery or anything like that, but I am absolutely a sucker for a good deal. It's gotten me into trouble more than once. Uh, Years ago, I needed a new computer, and I was tired of buying cheap laptops that would work for a year or two and then would become totally useless. I knew if I just made the investment in a desktop computer, I could save money in the long term. With a desktop, I could upgrade a few parts instead of replacing the whole thing. I told Emily my plan. She was on board with it, so I started looking. Now, I'm not one for big box stores. Uh, I know if I walk into a huge building, I'm not just paying for the computer. I'm also paying for the lease on the building, the electricity, the health insurance for the employees, the whole thing, right? So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to look online and see if I can find a little independent contractor. Actually, what I really want is someone who lives and breathes computers, someone who likes it so much they don't even care about getting paid for it. They just like to to build computers because it's fun for them. So I'm being patient, looking for the right deal, and finally I find it. Someone is advertising on Craigslist, hey, I build computers in North Jersey. If you're interested, let me know. Perfect. So I email him and tell him I'm looking for a desktop. I have an old one I'd like him to gut and put in a new motherboard. I give him a price range, and he agrees. We're good to go. I arrange to meet him and and drop off the old computer. I even asked my boys if they wanted to go with me, and Hal, uh, he's just a little tyke at this point, and he says yes. So we head off together, and we we arrive nearby, and I actually missed the turn on a really busy road uh, by just a few feet. So I'm actually in a factory parking lot instead of at the apartment complex, uh, and, and I, I text him from there, and I'm a little embarrassed at this point, and he's walking over, and I open the trunk of my car, and I think to myself, boy, if someone is looking from the outside at this, this really looks like a drug deal, doesn't it? Uh, and I greet the guy, uh, show him the computer, he takes it, and he says he'll, he'll let me know about the specs after he takes a look at it. A day or so later, he tells me the form factor and gives me a list of parts. Uh, It's not too expensive, and he's already done the hardest part of identifying the parts that fit in my particular case. So I send him the money for the parts, and he tells me he'll be in touch once the parts have arrived in the next couple of days. So it's a couple of days later, and I send him a message just checking in, and the email is disconnected. That's weird. So I send a text message also disconnected. Okay, now I'm getting really nervous. I look for the original post on Craigslist, and it's gone. I check his profile through the payment system I used, also gone, and it dawns on me, I have been defrauded. I 100% got fooled. 
I'd been so committed to getting a deal, I didn't do my due diligence. I was blinded to the red flags that should have warned me, this is a scam. Don't do business with this person. In fact, this whole event was so embarrassing to me, I never told my wife about it. She is literally right now hearing about it for the first time. Sorry, hon. <laughs> but see, I'm smart. I know if I tell her while I'm in the pulpit, she can't yell at me, huh? For many of us, there is this temptation, this draw to win the lottery, to get the best deal, or even just to look good, even if we aren't quite as successful as we try and convince others that we are. I said at the start that listening to that phone call, hoping to win the publisher's clearinghouse, can be like our faith. What I mean by that is that sometimes what we are really banking on is not getting what we rightfully deserve. What we are banking on is getting something completely opposite of what we deserve. We want the free stuff. We want the easy million dollars with no work. All I had to do was listen to that voicemail and then call them back. And it, it could happen, right? Sometimes good things happen out of nowhere. But too often we are trying to take the easy way out. We are trying to do things the convenient way and not necessarily the right way. At the core of who we are, we got to ask, am I living the right way? Is this really the way I should go, or am I getting tricked and tempted into doing things the easy way, like a fraud? And I don't just mean this for the non-religious folks. Either religious people have to be guarded, too. Religion can look like a good deal. But if we don't do it right, we can be headed down the wrong path with that as well. There was this neat little experiment done years ago with seminary students. They are literally training how to be religious leaders. And they split them into two groups. One group was asked to think of practical ways to help people in need and to give a talk about it, while the other group was specifically told the story of the Good Samaritan, about a person in need and how Jesus commended the person who stopped to help. And then they had to give a talk about it. So the experiment was actually this. Each individual student was asked to head to the other side of the campus and meet with some people to give their talk, one of the two talks, right? Some were told they had time. Others were told they were already late and had to get over there quickly. When they left the building, though, there would be a staged incident. Someone was in need, and the question was, would these seminarians, these students learning to be religious leaders, some of whom had just heard the story of the Good Samaritan, stop and help. Did hearing the story help? Did people do what Jesus told us to do after they were just reminded of it? Nope, not even a little bit. The only thing that had any influence on whether people stopped to help was whether they were told they had extra time or if they were late. We might know in our heads the right way to live, and then when it comes down to it, be so rushed, so overwhelmed, or so inwardly focused, we just miss it. We could be living the wrong way and not even realize it. Being religious does not protect us from being fraudulent with our faith. 
The Apostle Paul has some helpful words for us on this point. The whole book of Romans is written to help us work out what faith really means for us. When he first wrote the book, there were two groups in Rome that were struggling to get along, Christians and Jews. So he writes to them to try and help them work through their differences. In the section we read today, uh, he holds up the example of Abraham as a model for everyone. Jews like it because Abraham is considered the founder and father of their religion. And the Gentiles, the, the Christians that were not Jewish, they like it because Abraham is the first convert. He didn't start out Jewish. He was from Ur of Chaldeed. We'd call him an Iraqi today. But he, he changes. He lives a different way and becomes the model for everyone. And Paul makes the point that it's not his lineage that matters. You don't have to be genetically a descendant of Abraham to have his faith. No, this isn't a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. You have to be spiritually descended from Abraham, which is open to everyone, not just the Jews. But the apostle goes on. In the next chapter, he says, Everyone on earth is descended from Adam, so we are all sinners. The rules and the law can't justify us because eventually we will all break a rule or law just like Adam did. He goes on to say that all Gentiles, all non-Jewish people, are grafted onto the tree that is Judaism, so we dare not be anti-Semitic. We must respect the religious practices of our Jewish brothers and sisters. Then the crescendo of Romans is that not only should these different ethnic and racial groups be reconciled to each other, they should be united together. Listen to what he says at the end of the book. Romans 16, 17 through 19 says, Keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and offenses in opposition to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them, for such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. This is the key here, the next line. Be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. you got to know what is good. Don't be gullible and fall into doing evil. Know the difference between those, these two things so you can stay on the right path. What I hear him saying is don't let culture and race separate you. You're on the same team here. The goal is to live rightly. So if you are saying you love everyone and then you go and treat some people like dirt, what does that say about you? You've missed it. Be consistent with your faith. Otherwise, you're just a fraud. Years ago, the San Francisco Giants baseball team was in the World Series. Since they moved from New York in 1958, they hadn't won a single series. They'd been in it three times, but hadn't won the whole thing for five decades. And that whole time, they had this one guy, Mike Murphy, who was a part of the organization. He started as a bat boy, picking up the bats after players hit the ball. Then he moved up to clubhouse attendant, and then finally equipment manager. When the Giants did finally win the World Series, he had been working with their team the entire West Coast history. They had 52 years of faithful service. After the final game, the trophy was handed to the owner of the team 
as they won that World Series. And then you know who the very next person to receive it was? The owner hands the trophy to Mike Murphy. Not the star players, not the coach, to the equipment manager. And everybody thought that was exactly the right thing to do. All the time, all that commitment through the ups and downs, people knew that was the right thing to honor. And I think a similar thing is true of our faith, too. Be consistent. Don't just do the right thing sometimes or in some situations. Keep at this thing. Make it part of every day, every moment of your life. Let people say, after 52 years, yeah, they're the ones that get the honor. Look at that commitment. Look at their dedication. They deserve it. And, of course, I'm thinking now, of George and Marianne Van Dyke on their 50th anniversary, right? There's this interesting debate in Christianity about what it really means to have faith. Uh, A theologian, N.T. Wright, wrote a book a few years ago pointing out that the Greek word in the Bible for faith actually has two meanings. It can mean faith, and it can also mean faithfulness. And his point is, What does faith really mean? Sometimes when we talk about faith, we might think, oh, having faith means believing in Jesus. But the Apostle James says, look, even devils believe in God. That's clearly not enough. So we take it the next step and say, faith means we have mental assent. We believe in Jesus and acknowledge that he is Lord and King. Well, that's good. It's a step in the right direction. But like those students who were sent in a hurry to another part of campus, it can be really easy to get distracted from the goal if all we do is believe something in our heads. N.T. Wright says, faith is about faithfulness. It's about that commitment day after day, week after week, year after year, working toward the good of all. Sometimes you get so worked up about breaking the rules or doing something wrong, we actually wind up in a worse place. Faithfulness keeps our dedication on the things of God, even when we are exhausted, even when nothing is going right. Be faithful. Don't be a fraud. That doesn't mean you'll never never struggle with faith or, or never have doubt in your life. In fact, I would argue being faithful means you'll specifically struggle and specifically have doubts. As we change and grow, we have to wrestle with what we think and believe is really right. Growth means you let go of former things to embrace new, better realities. My beliefs today are far different from what they were when I chose to follow God at just five or six years old. Does that mean I'm less faithful because I don't believe what I did back then? No, of course not. Faithfulness means change. But it also means we keep embracing God through it all. I'm still learning how to do this. My marriage is one of those key places where God keeps teaching me how to grow and change and and trust God more. Every time we have an argument between me and Emily, which is not very often, uh, but when we do, I find that my very natural instinct is to separate, to put distance between us so we can talk when we are cool and calm. For Emily, though, she wants to talk, talk it out right now, right away, as we're having the argument. Uh, she shared with me the anxiety and churn that she feels when we don't talk right away, so I'm slowly learning to do better. 
How do I stay engaged when everything in me tells me to run away, right? How do I stay faithful to God and to the people around me when I know things will be uncomfortable? I'm still learning to do this, but I actually found a pretty good model on the right way to handle this. You know who I think about when I feel like running? I think about Martin Luther King Jr. We are celebrating him here in the U.S. this weekend, and for many of us, he is the right image of speaking out and courage in the face of opposition. I was reading letters from a Birmingham jail this weekend. That's the letters turned into a book that King wrote while he was in jail for protesting. I only learned about the situation this week. Many of us know he was protesting segregation and he was arrested for breaking laws that were only passed that week in order to stop their peaceful march. The king's response was totally nonviolent, standing for what is right, even though it was going to land him in jail. He actually learned about the impact of nonviolent protests from a United Methodist pastor. But what I didn't know was the response King got for marching in Birmingham. Eight white local clergy wrote a call for unity in the local paper, telling King he was wrong for protesting. They said, of course, there are social injustices, but he should let the courts sort out the laws and what is right and what is wrong. He said King and African Americans across the country needed to be patient. I think King blew a gasket when he read that. He immediately started writing on the margins of the newspaper while he was in prison. He continued to write on scraps of paper and finally on a legal pad provided to him by the lawyers. He wrote about the repeated failed negotiations for civil rights. He wrote how wait for marginalized people almost always meant never. One of his most famous quotes is here, justice too long delayed is justice denied. Brutal beatings by the police and repeated bombings of black churches and homes is evil. He wrote, we all need to work together thinking of the needs of others, no matter the color of their skin, because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Finally, he said that when a law is just, it is the responsibility to, of all to follow it, but an unjust law is no law at all. When we break the law that we know is unjust and accept the punishment for it, we are expressing the very highest regard for the law. Complacency is not the gospel. Sitting by doing nothing is a fraudulent faith. Certainly these are tough words to hear, but it was the start to a massive positive change here in the U.S. What we can learn, I think, is that real faith isn't really about what we believe. It's not about knowing the law or even knowing what God expects of you. It's a lot more about what you do, about standing for what is good and making a difference even if everything in you is telling you to run away. For us as a church to be people of faith, we have to embrace others, even in their differences. It's being on the journey, searching for God everywhere you go, in everyone you meet. 
To be on the way means God will find us not as frauds, taking the easy way, but as truly faithful disciples, bringing people with differences together, uniting us all for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.